You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Frederick Skip Burkle. Dr. Burkle is a senior fellow at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, Harvard School of Public Health. We'll be speaking to Dr. Burkle from Honolulu, Hawaii. Our subject today will be healthcare in Iraq, past, present, and future. Thank you, Dr. Burkle, for joining us. My pleasure, Maureen. I know that you came to Iraq in 2003 and were head of the Ministry of Health. So you now saw the people who were carrying on the fighting also trying to deliver humanitarian needs. Did it sometimes bother the humanitarian workers that they were somehow merged into the military picture? Oh, absolutely. As soon as this announcement was made, I mean, there were a number of meetings with Interaction, which is a policy group serving most of the North American NGOs, and uh, a number of others, because uh, through the State Department and through Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, I mean, up to that time, there were many groups, including the UN, UNICEF and WHO in particular from the health side, who already, we had already developed contracts with them to take over many of the roles or help us with many of the roles as far as surveillance, education, and training, and to ensure, as all our programs have occurred historically, to ensure under the Geneva Conventions, specifically Articles 55 and 56, that as occupiers, governments will work very hard to reestablish essential health care and public health infrastructure. So that's to mitigate and prevent the indirect mortality and morbidity that often occurs after the shooting has stopped. So, you know, this is something we've been doing along with our partners in the humanitarian community for a long, long time. So to have this happen and have Department of Defense take this over, everybody had questions. I mean, how do we work with the Department of Defense? This is unprecedented with the humanitarian community. Can we really, under international law, can we keep our neutrality? I mean, there were it just developed many, many questions and concerns. And there really wasn't that much time to start discussing these things from an operational standpoint very well. And some non-governmental organizations just said, you know, we can't work with the Department of Defense. But I have to say that it was Orha's assumptions that there was going to be a rapid removal of the Iraqi regime and that a humanitarian crisis was unlikely, including little population displacement or public health infrastructure loss, and that it was probably unnecessary to have the non-governmental organizations or the UN agencies involved because they felt that initially, within three months, uh, they would move quickly into a reconstruction phase. And then when the invasion occurred, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld said that the U.S. government would be out of Iraq within three weeks. And so there was very unlikely, as far as their planning, that there would be any humanitarian crisis. Before the Department of Defense got involved, the whole budget for reconstruction and humanitarian assistance was about $4.2 billion. But when the Department of Defense took over, they immediately cut that budget to $2.1 billion, very assured that no humanitarian crisis would occur. Now, I had, I was part of the negotiations of USAID 
with contracts with the World Health Organization and UNICEF, who I must say had been in there in the decade between the first Persian Gulf War and this anticipated war. And they had done tremendous improvements in education and training, surveillance and whatever. So a part of my plan, which was accepted by the State Department and others, was to use them. And we funded uh, UNICEF for $20 million and WHO for $10 million to actually enhance their education and training to provide a much better surveillance system so we would know exactly who was dying from what and what morbidity it was after any shooting had stopped. And this is something that we had done with all complex humanitarian emergencies for a couple of decades before. So this is the usual and quite proper approach in the post-conflict situation. Having said that, what actually then transpired? You've told us that our government had a feeling that there was going to be little need for reconstruction, that infrastructure wasn't going to be a problem, water and electricity were not going to affect health care. What actually happened then? Well, just back up one second, and the reason why we had a concern from USAID and the State Department side was that there were some critical indicators that uh, had suffered, had declined tremendously during the 10 years from the first Persian Gulf War to the anticipated invasion. And one was the infant mortality rate had gone from about 47 to 108 per 1,000 live births. That's quite significant. The underage five mortality rate had gone from 56 to 131. And the acute malnutrition rate had gone from 3.6 to 11. It had dropped to 4.1 in 2002, so just prior to the war. But the interesting thing there, which I talked actively about, and that was the fact that the Iraqi government was not able to do that without tremendous assistance from UNICEF, WHO, and non-governmental organizations like Oxfam. So what it told me, and it should have told others, was that the Iraqi government did not have what it needed to do to respond if there was indeed any humanitarian crisis brought about by the war. There were also increases in the reported cases of TB and cholera and typhoid, but quite honestly, we didn't know whether this was just because there was now improved reporting because of World Health Organization and UNICEF's increase in education and training. So when this happened, and we were told that there was not going to be any humanitarian crisis, we were going to be out of Iraq in three weeks, I think we all had to sort of sit on our hands and just wait to see what occurred. When the war ceased, there was a little bit of a honeymoon period, but quite honestly, it was clear to anybody who had been involved in previous complex humanitarian emergencies brought about by war and conflict that there were really no efforts being made to reconstruct and rehabilitate the public health infrastructure or the system. There were attempts, but as you all know now historically, the insecurity issues became more ubiquitous. And I say that it was just not security issues that were confronting the coalition forces. But now the civilian agencies, what remained of the non-governmental organizations, and when the UN was asked to come back in after the coalition provisional authority was in charge, their security assessment under what's called UNSECORD said that it was not safe for the UN to come back. But the UN did come back, and I think under some political pressure. But as we all know, the UN destruction of their temporary headquarters was quite severe and leadership was uh, killed. 
And this really stopped a lot of attempts to reconstruct and rehabilitate the very, very critical public health infrastructure. So what did that end up happening? Well, you know, Iraq was actually a developed country model. They had quite decent health indices, even though they had declined somewhat during that decade. But they were even doing kidney transplants up to two weeks before the invasion. They had a good workforce. And they had many physicians. They lacked uh, critical infrastructure and nursing and certainly public health. And there were plans that we had under the State Department to rehabilitate and provide education and training in those areas uh, almost immediately. But all of those things, as they said, were tabled. So what we know and have had experience with this now over about three decades is that as war continues to go on, it's prolonged, that there is a deterioration in the public health system and and the infrastructure. And the way it shows its ugly head is actually in a decrease and declining in the normal health indices like infant mortality rates and underage five mortality rates, maternal mortality rates, and what have you. So this occurred. And once there was the first Iraqi minister of health in October of 2004, the very first thing he did was to develop a surveillance system because my plans for a surveillance system were tabled by the individual who took over when I was relieved. And there was really no surveillance system. And what we know is that political systems would prefer not having the data. In one press conference, the senior advisor who took over for me said that there was no reason for a surveillance system, that they knew what they had to rehabilitate, which is not the case. Surveillance systems tell us the things we don't know, and they they keep governments honest. So by uh, October 2004, the Ministry of Health report said that there were more deaths from public health reasons than violence in Baghdad, at least. So it already began to show its ugly head. And by 2006, the infant mortality rate was one of the highest in the world, along with uh, actually that um, what Iraq's level of infant mortality was shared with Liberia, Afghanistan, and Sierra Leone. The underage five mortality rate, uh, the decline was the most rapid rate that ever occurred had ever been seen and recorded worldwide. So what unfortunately neglect that happened with this ongoing war is that we had moved a developed country model that was quite decent into a developing country model, which was not unlike those countries like Liberia and Sierra Leone that we had seen in the previous several decades in in Africa, and that's one of the shames. And despite the fact that there were reports that the coalition had reconstructed the critical public health infrastructure, the hospitals, the clinics, and whatever. It was the Inspector General's report in 2006 that said that only four out of the 180 medical clinics were actually reconstructed. And of the 136 water and sanitation projects that were planned, only 49 were planned to be done. And the potable water prior to the war, which was about 50% of the population, the coalition provisional authorities, gold was 90%. But by 2006, only 32% 
of the population had potable water, and only 19% had sewerage access. So it was clear, it's pretty basic to public health, that uh, this certainly explains why there was a marked increase of indirect uh, mortality and morbidity. And unfortunately, by that time, too, plans to overhaul the country's infrastructure were downsized, postponed, or abandoned, certainly by that time being dwarfed by the scale of the task. Now, again, this is what we predicted would happen, but this was ignored and shunned, and clearly the accountability goes to the Department of Defense, who had the responsibility for, under the Geneva Conventions, to bring back essential health and public health care. But uh, you also, another caveat at this was that, at least initially, we were told by the Secretary of Defense that the uh, Geneva Conventions did not apply in this particular war. And so there wasn't that attention put to the requirements on the Geneva Convention that uh, we are a signatory to. Now, it wasn't until, again, 2004, late 2004, that the Secretary of Defense did admit that we did have a responsibility under the Geneva Conventions, but I think that was too little too late. I want to thank Dr. Frederick Burkle, who has been our guest today, and we've been discussing health care in Iraq 2003-2004. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.